If you love how Dan Rather unravels amazing true stories, you got to check out Music's Greatest Mysteries. That podcast will really get you thinking. Welcome to Dan Rather's The Big Interview, the thought-provoking podcast with in-depth interviews with music and cultural icons only Dan Rather can deliver. Each episode will bring you exclusive in-depth interviews from classic rock to country and alternative. We cover it all right here on Dan Rather's The Big Interview. So sit back and enjoy these magnificent stories from the artists that lived it. Here's your host, Dan Rather. You know, we got to do it someday. Throw away all the guns and invite all the jokers from the north and the south in here to a cocktail party. Tonight, on The Big Interview. People would say to me, oh, is it hard for you to play a Republican? Because I had this idea that I was some kind of arch liberal. And I thought, nobody ever asked me if it was hard to play an axe murderer. Television legend and Hollywood's Mr. Nice Guy, Alan Alda. Is this liver or am I changing a tire? Famed for playing Army Surgeon Hawkeye Pierce on MASH, Alan Alda is now in the unusual position of teaching new skills to medical students. I began to realize that I could probably be helpful with scientists helping them communicate better because there were things I knew as an actor that could be transferred to them. Dish, look, clean that up for us. Will you put some okay, suction okay. in there? Give me a clamp. Clamp. Want to play a little doctor after we're finished? If you know nothing else about Alan Alda, you probably know him as Hawkeye from the groundbreaking television series MASH. I happen to be an officer only because I foolishly opened an invitation from President Truman to come to this costume party. The dramatic comedy about an army surgical team in the Korean War ran for 11 seasons on CBS. The final episode still holds the record for most watched American television program ever, not including Super Bowls. Alda won five Emmy Awards for his work on the series, not only for his acting, but also for writing and directing. MASH, though, is only a small piece of Alda's career. He appeared on Broadway in the 1960s, earning a Tony nomination for Best Actor in a Musical, for the apple tree. Now I could swear that it's a fish. That would be the first of three Tony nominations over the years. And in 2005, he earned an Oscar nomination for his supporting role in Martin Scorsese's film about Howard Hughes, The Aviator. It isn't me, Howard. It's the United States government. We just beat Germany and Japan. Who the hell are you? Not to mention his critically praised and Emmy-winning role on television's The West Wing. But Alda considers himself a writer first and foremost. In addition to scripts for theater, television, and the movies, he is the author of two best-selling memoirs. And there's another passion, science. Hello, and welcome to Scientific American Frontiers. I'm Alan Alda. For over a decade, he hosted the PBS series Scientific American Frontiers. Is it really accelerating? What, what, what do you mean accelerating? He brought a personable and often humorous approach to a subject that was traditionally seen as technical and forbidding. Yeah, then you broke it up with hydrogen, and then you ground it up into a powder, and that's what you got here? You're the expert now. <laughs> Lately, Alda has started to use his intimate knowledge of acting and communication skills to help scientists relate their ideas to one another and to the public at large. Communication is a two-way street. If it's only one way, if it's just me telling you what I think I know, I'm spraying information at you. To that end, he helped found the Alan Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University in New York, which is where I sat down with him. Well, here I am with one of the best actors, writers, directors of his time. What, what am I doing interviewing him in a science lab? What's that about? You just will come clean with the audience. Yeah, well, I'm really interested in science. I have been all my life. And once I started interviewing scientists on 
on television. I must have interviewed about 700 of them over a period of about 11 or 12 years. I began to realize that I could probably be helpful with scientists helping them communicate better because there were things I knew as, a, as an actor and as a communicator myself that could be transferred to them in unusual ways. They're very unusual ways, but they work. So I spend a lot of time, or have spent a lot of time, in labs like this. Why? What does it matter? You know, it matters a great deal. It matters to us, who are not scientists, and it matters to science itself. The public doesn't understand scientific jargon, and if scientists only speak to us in that jargon, then we're not really going to be able to understand what they're trying to do. We put people in office who decide whether or not to fund science. Then the scientists go and talk to the people in Congress, for instance. They often don't understand the science either. So why should they fund science that they don't understand? Why should you give any... I wouldn't buy something I didn't understand. And then beyond that, when scientists are talking to other scientists who aren't in their exact specialty, if they don't make it understandable to them, they're not going to be able to collaborate very well. And most of the scientists working today are looking forward to collaborations across disciplines because they can get great stuff done that way. But that all involves better communication. And we're all on the short end of the stick if, if communication stays clogged. See, the idea is you're reading each other's minds by getting little clues from the way the person's moving their body. Here, Alda is working with a group of medical students. He's guiding them through a series of improvisational theater games, perhaps more familiar to actors than to scientists. Just pass a sound around, first of all. Just pass one sound, just any sound. Make up a sound and pass it around. Okay, all right, good, good. What these games do is put you in contact with the other person you're playing with. So that then when you turn to somebody else, whether it's an audience hearing you talk or a patient, you fall into contact with them in a very personal way. There's an intimate relationship between the two of you. Were you particularly good in science when you were in school? No, I was particularly school? bad in science, but I was always interested in it. In those days, you had to break glass pipettes with your fingers before you could do the experiment, before you could pour stuff in them. I would cut my fingers on the glass and be covered with bandages, and I couldn't, I couldn't even get into the experiment. I was no good at the glass works. Mm -hmm. And then I couldn't understand uh, the basics. Well, one reason I was eager to speak to you about this is that I took both chemistry and physics, mm. was a terrible student in both of them, I'm mm. sorry to say, but I was always glad I took them because it at least gave me a thin baseline, if you will, to understand science. I, I sort of had to... Um, teach myself what little I know about chemistry and physics and other hard sciences uh, because I never came into contact with people who could energize me with their own passion. I'm not sure they had that passion and, and if they did, they didn't know how to inject me with it. And I, I know there are, there are millions of people out there like me in the general public who really would like to know more about it, but, but they need somebody to look them in the eye and talk to them person to person that I had when I was on television interviewing scientists. They weren't interviews in the normal <laughs> sense. They were just conversations. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to know. I wanted to learn. And I'd grab them and shake them sometimes <laughs> and say, I don't get it. What are you talking about? <laughs> and, and we became two real people to each other. And then, and then it wasn't just information passing between us. It was understanding. It was, do you really get it? Do you know what I'm saying? That kind of thing. Unless they can do that, it's not going to go between them. Well, tell me about, I want to get the name right, the Flame Challenge. Yes. What is the Flame Challenge? The Flame Challenge is a contest I started for scientists. And it came from my own life. Because when I was 11 years old, I wondered what a flame was. And I asked a teacher, and she said, it's oxidation. And that's all she said. And I did, it was just calling it another name, you know. A flame is Fred. That's it. That's all I'm going to tell you. So a couple of years ago, I, I remembered that, that 
desire to know that I had. And so I said, how about if we start a contest for scientists to explain what a flame is so that an 11-year-old can understand it and the contest will be judged by real 11-year-olds. And last year we had 20,000 kids who, who signed up to be judges through their teachers. And uh, uh, hundreds of scientists, were, I think this year we're gonna have uh, a, a lot of scientists because really, we're really putting the word out to them. And they try as hard as they can to be clear and accurate and not, not, tell, not just tell too many jokes and, and sort of cloud the issue. One kid said this wonderful thing once. He said, you know, we really, we really want information. We want to understand this. It's okay to be funny, but you don't have to be silly about it. He said, we're 11, we're not seven. <laughs> I love it, I love it. Well, you said that this desire to know that you had yeah. at age 11. From where did that curiosity come? I don't know. My, my, I think my father was curious. He, although he started in burlesque and became an actor in the movies and on Broadway, he, he had gone to uh, Stuyvesant High School in New York, which you get to be pretty smart to get into. And his favorite book was Men in White about discovering microbes. And that. Uh, so I may get it to genetically. I don't know. I'm just very curious. Aldo's Flame Challenge competition has now been held three years in a row. This year, nearly 27,000 students from around the world will judge how well scientists can clearly and thoughtfully answer the question, what is color? What happened to the idea that every person who got a university degree or a full four-year college degree had to have at least a year or two of what we call hard science. That's yeah. pretty much gone by the boards. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't know. It's interesting. We seem to go by fits and starts and spurts. I mean, now there's, there's uh, efforts to, to promote what they call STEM education, which are the sciences. Science, technology. Engineering, engineering and, math. and math. Yeah, and then by the same token, now people who are worried about the humanities say, well, you got all that attention over there. What about the humanities? Why aren't they all mixed? Why, why can't we learn one through the other? You know, there was a time in, among the Greeks when rhetoric covered everything. Right. And you didn't divide the world into science and humanities. There's a good, there's a good reason to, to, to some extent go back to that, to, to educate both interests equally in each in the other and through the other because we can, the, the, the human brain works that way. <laughs> okay, what's your name? Ross. Ross, Ross is gonna sell us something in gibberish. <laughs> and we're gonna figure out, come over here and do it from here. And we're gonna figure out what he's selling us. Don't call it out, let's just see if we get the idea. He's, no, no. <laughs> okay, what's he selling? What is it? Soap. Is it soap? Great. Good. 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 Okay. The reason we do so much improvising is that we've come to see that it's foundational, that there's something about the experience of improvising a lot. Actually, there's something about improvising just a little that opens you up to another person. At the government funding level, mm -hmm. we all know that cutting way back on research, basic yeah. science oh, yeah. research, when yeah. you talk to scientists, what do they say about this? Well, they're, they're upset because research that has already been set in motion has to be curtailed or cut back. Sometimes you can't finish a study by cutting it in half halfway through. You can't, you'd have to start with a new study. Careers are going to be affected by these severe cutbacks. The, the things that we need to keep up with the other countries around the world in physics and chemistry and all, all, the, all the sciences that require funding, that's not going to happen. We're going to fall behind. We we'll lose our leadership. We now are in a position of world leadership. Yes. Yeah. Well. Well. Uh, yeah. I think other countries in some areas are still. We still win a lot of prizes, so that's that's good. I mean, we have a lot of. Uh, but we. But when then we 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 train people here and send them back to their countries, which is another 
odd thing that we do. Very odd. Um, but the scientists I know feel it very keenly that that they have just arbitrarily been cut back in their funding. But all the more reason why they have to communicate to the funders why it's in the funders' interests, why it's in the interests of their constituents, why it's in the interests of the country. You know, there was a physicist called Bob Wilson who gave testimony. Right. A senator said, will this help us with national security? Will it help us save our country? And he said, uh, no, but it'll make our country worth saving. What an answer. Yeah. You're listening to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. We'll be back with Alan Alda. Welcome back to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Today's guest is Alan Alda. The seeds of Alan Alda's acting talent were sown early. His father, Robert Alda, was also an actor. Father and son appeared twice together on Match. Are we great? We're great! Yeah, we're a team. I should have broken my arm an hour ago. An hour ago, I would have broken it for you. <laughs> Luck be a lady tonight. Perhaps Robert Alda Luck is best be known for creating tonight. the role of Sky Masterson Luck in the original stage production of Guys and Dolls. He won a 1951 Tony Award for his performance. He also portrayed composer George Gershwin in the Hollywood feature Rhapsody in Blue. You don't have to say anything. I... I know it isn't any good. But Robert Alta first made a name for himself in the world of burlesque, touring the country with little Alan in tow in what some might consider a less than wholesome environment. But I'm interested, I ran across this phrase, and for some in our audience, I hope they'll forgive me using the phrase, said that your father was a, quote, tit singer. Yes, that was the official title for what his job. What is that? Well, he would sing while the chorus girls oh. paraded half naked. And uh, people who did that had, you know, were called tit, tit singers. That was the name that they were given. It was like a job title. You know? But he was also known as one of the best or the best uh, of straight men in the business. The guy who stands next to the comic and helps the comic. You have to really know comedy to be a good straight man because it's not the punchline that makes it funny. It's the build-up to the punchline. It's punch the setup, set and you got to do that exactly right. You got to know timing. It's like the guy who holds the ballerina up so she can do the. You the he, he's in that thankless position of holding the comic up. <laughs> well, as a child, and you, I know you moved around with your family. Yeah. Uh, where were you? And what did I was you in do? The, and what did in you the think back about seat or in the trunk? <laughs> <laughs> I was standing in the wings, watching burlesque. Watching uh, that was my first, maybe three or four years of my life. I was standing in the wings watching the strippers, the chorus girls, and especially the comics. I, I, I really learned a lot watching. I think you learn about the theater in the most effective way. You learn better that way than watching from the audience or talking about it or maybe even taking lessons in it, although everybody should study. But then you went into acting. Now, with so many children, one, their parents don't want them to go in the same field that they, their parents, are mm -hmm. in. And two, the children often say, listen, I've seen too much, but that was not the case with you. No, I really wanted to, to be an actor. I wanted to be a writer before I wanted to be an actor. And all my life tried to be as good a writer as I could. Unfortunately, never studied either one formally. I mean, I took all the courses in college, but I was afraid that if I studied acting that an acting teacher would destroy my natural genius. I was a little... Then I, after about 15 years, I was really a much better actor and had dropped most of my unpleasant mannerisms, which made up the large part of my creative genius, the mannerisms, you know. So I, it, wouldn't, it wasn't a bad idea to drop them. It would have been good to drop them earlier. Well, did you feel yourself in competition with your father? You yes, just, yes. Tell me about that. Yeah, well, I, I think that happens a lot with boys and their fathers, this competitive feeling. He was a very handsome leading man. He was confused with Cary Grant a lot when we would walk in the street, and, and you can't get much more handsome than that. I avoided playing leading men parts in the beginning because I didn't want to be in competition with him because he had that field sewn up. 
So I started as a kind of eccentric comedian. Then there came a point in my life where I had to be the leading man. I mean, that was the part that I would be cast in commonly. And I had to accept that mantle in a way. And by that time, I, I wasn't as competitive with him. We've talked about your father. What about your mother? My mother, unfortunately, was schizophrenic and paranoid. Uh, and I felt most of my life was not what I hoped a mother would be. It was later I realized that she really, really loved me and gave me a lot of support, told me I could do anything that I wanted, uh, you know, would help me have aspirations, but also um, told me that I was trying to kill her from time to time. I mean, she was paranoid, you know, she, was, she, she heard voices and was suspicious of everybody around her. And, and it, so it's hard to grow up with a mother who thinks you're trying to kill her. So um, I have way more compassion for her now that I understand that it, it wasn't her fault that she was mentally ill. And that that's, was something that was not easy to understand at the time because nobody talked about it. My father and I never discussed her mental illness. Different era. Yeah, yeah, way different. What did you learn from that? Or perhaps what is that, was that the making of you in some important way? Well, I, I can't believe it wasn't in, in some um, Freudian way. I, there, there must have been things that I went through that shaped me. I'll tell you one thing that I think I'm aware of, that I'm conscious of. Most of it is probably th stuff that I'm not conscious of. But something I do remember is that I had to observe her very carefully to know what was actual reality and what was her reality. Because she would say, see those cracks in the wall? They have cameras in there and they're taking our picture. And if you're very young, you'd think, is this, is that true? Or, or do I have to make an allowance for the fact that she doesn't see things the way other people do? So I think that helped me to become a good observer which helps as when you write and it helps when you act. You, you have, also opens you up to what's really happening. And what's really happening is essential to observe when you're acting or communicating. Whatever is really going on between us. You know, before I got into that, I would bore people with stories and not notice that they were yawning while I was talking. That's kind of an obvious clue that you're not getting through. But to pick up on the signals is so much better. And, and I think I got better at that. I had something to work from because I had to observe her so, so well. You said you studied acting, not so much in classes. You, you were determined to be as good or better than your father. Tell me about that. How do you study acting? Do you stand in front of the mirror? Do you? No, that's not a good idea to stand in front of the mirror because then you deal with the externals of it. I would read a lot about it, the great acting teachers like Stanislavski and Boleslavski and others. But the thing that really changed me, that really made me a better actor and changed me as a person, was improvising. And when I spent about six months in an improvisation class run by Paul Sills, who started Second City but didn't teach the kind of comedy improvising that they did at Second City. He taught what his mother had invented, which is theater games, which are improvisational games that lead to real connection, real creativity, real presence, real listening, real observation. These things are the bedrock of that kind of improvising. And it's all in game form. And it brings the real you out. And that's what I teach scientists now, because if they can make a warm personal connection with the people they're talking with, or the people they're writing for, suddenly you have something that goes back and forth between them, and it isn't just a question of spraying information at them. Well, I'm particularly interested in hearing you say that. As you know, I came out of a print reporter's background yeah. in radio, and then into television. When I got into television, particularly the anchoring part of it, they spoke to me about, Dan, it's all about getting through the glass. Mm. There has to be some connection, otherwise it, it doesn't matter what you it's say. It's true, you, do, you, you have to have that presence. You have to be aware that there's somebody at the other end of your communication, even when all there is is a lens. That's what we have to do, is we have to connect. Well, speaking of connecting, 
you connected, did you ever connect in the role of Hawkeye hmm. on the great, some think the greatest television series ever, MASH? Thank you. How did you do that? I just jumped into it as, as though it were an improvisation because I really didn't feel that character was anything like me. And I thought to myself, how the hell am I going to play this? And when I think that, that's usually when I do my best work because I really have to allow everything to change and not do it the way I've done it before, the way somebody else has done it before. Like, if I have no idea how to do it, I'm, I'm in clover. So th there was a moment when, after 10 days of rehearsal, we're getting ready for my first shot. I'm supposed to walk out of the shed and walk across the compound. And it's a silent shot. I'm just walk walking across the compound. And I'm thinking, I'm all dressed up. I got the boots on. I got the uniform on. I still don't know how I'm going to be this guy. <laughs> and I hear quiet on the set. It's, it's not coming to me. <laughs> and then they get the clapperboard, scene one, take one, action. And there's a nurse coming toward me. And I just grabbed her around the waist and gave her a hug, and she hugged me back. And I thought, I'm the guy. That's not so hard. <laughs> and not a bad line of work. <laughs> You're listening to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. We'll be back with Alan Alda. Welcome back to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Today's guest is Alan Alda. I say he should be sedated every hour on the hour. I can swear I heard a bugle. We gotta get up early anyway and fix MacArthur's hernia. Come on, Mary. Well, you not only acted the role of Hawkeye, you became Hawk Hawkeye in the minds and hearts of so many people, but you eventually wrote and directed uh, some in the series. I did, a, I wrote a lot of it. I directed about 35 episodes and I wrote 19 or 20. I was able to learn how to be better at the things I did while I did MASH. I got better as a, an actor, as a writer, as a director. So it was a wonderful laboratory for me. And the success of the show freed us all to, uh, to let our imaginations go. And we, we, we told stories frequently that were really unusual ways to tell stories. Give me an example. Well, one that was uh, really successful was where were the, the the camera played the part of a soldier. So you saw the whole story through his eyes. And when people talked to him, they talked right to the lens. Hi there, I'm Captain Pierce. What do you think of me so far? Okay, now just relax. I only want to look under your bandage. Army regulations, you could be hiding a jeep. And only what he saw was what the audience saw from the time he was wounded on the battlefield until he was out of surgery. These charts come in handy, you know? Everybody ought to have one. Somebody asks you how you're doing, you don't have to answer. Just show them your chart. So how you doing? Oh, wise guy, huh? And then uh, I did a show that I really liked a lot, that I wrote uh, about the dreams of the people. But they weren't dreams of wish fulfillment. They were nightmares of frustration that they couldn't save the people they were trying to operate on and that kind of thing. So there was a very, uh, it was both imaginative and, and kind of heavy at the same time. But they let us do that. The audience let us try things out and not be funny and silly all the time, knowing that we'd come back the next week giving them what they were more used to. Could that happen today? I don't think the whole thing could happen today. I mean, if you don't get a big audience today, they cancel you by the first commercial. <laughs> you don't see the second half of the show, practically. <laughs> Well, but wasn't MASH, or was it, a success almost from the very beginning? No, it wasn't. We did not uh, do well the first season. We were at the bottom of the ratings. I used to boast, you know, we're in the top 78. Because <laughs> we were down at the bottom. <laughs> but then at the end of the first season, uh, the audience 
had seen the hit shows, and now they started to sample us in the reruns, and they seemed to like it, and then the, by the second season, we were doing pretty well. Well, while you were doing MASH, MASH was that, after all, in the Korean War. Yeah. But the Vietnam War was, was still, still on. Still on. Did yeah. you worry? We're talking about the Korean War when the Vietnam War is on the front page of every newspaper. No, I was a little naive about it. I thought it was about the Korean War. That's, you know, what we had costumes, medical equipment from that period, vehicles from that period, you know. However, uh, Larry Gelbart, who wrote most of the shows for the first four years, um, was really using Korea to stand in for Vietnam. And I, I didn't really realize that. I was really only concerned with the, the research we had done on Korea. Well, one could extrapolate then that the audience got it. The I guess they did, yeah. But, um, some, some people have said, oh, you helped to end the Vietnam War. I, just a few people have said that, but I, I, I don't think so. I, I think we more reflected what was in the, 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 the country and the, the zeitgeist at the time. I don't think we affected it that much. I think, I think television can amplify things. I don't know if they get them started. Any fears then, since, or even now, that you'll always be identified with that role? People see you and say, Hawkeye? They do, but I was lucky that I played a lot of different characters. Even while we were doing the show, I, I made uh, some movies where I got to be known as an actor and not just as that character. Alta completed seven made-for-TV movies and five Hollywood features during the years he was on M.A.S.H., Time and again, he was cast in the role of the nice guy, the man audiences somehow felt they could trust. Helen's got the decorating bug now. I have this mental picture of her at my funeral as they're closing the lid to my coffin, throwing in two fabric swatches and yelling out, which one do you like? Tell me, what else do you do to keep that winsome adolescent look? You're just dying to make a little fun of me, aren't you? No, I don't mind, I have an hour to kill. Would you believe I, uh, I run uh, five miles every morning? After what? After a good night's sleep. I don't want to let this afternoon disappear without something to remember it by. Some memorial of our affection for one another. Yeah, terrific, but just don't wave your arms, okay? This is for all of you. So that we'll never forget this day. Yeah. I think I got to be known more as my own self than any of the characters I played, because I'd go on television and cover people with the slime of my affability, and, and that sort of registered on people, I think. Now, why did you use that phrase, the slime of your affability? Well, I, I, it's because it's funny. <laughs> well, it is funny. <laughs> no, but it tells me that you're a little sensitive about that, of being seen as always as oh. the nice guy. I, well, yeah, I, but that's it. See, I mean, I am, I am affable. So if it lodges in people's minds that I'm therefore not able to play other kinds of people, that wouldn't be helpful to me as, as an actor. And it, it, what's really funny about that is I've, at least half the time, if not more, I've played very flawed or really bad people. Almost every time I do it, somebody says, well, you've never done that before. And I, I've done it many times. And it's fun. It's fun to play a really bad guy. I mean, I think we all have many kinds of people in us, and we have many um, attributes. So some of us, I have a flash temper. I, I get angry, and I, I curse a mile a minute of driving down the highway. Hey, this is bulletin material. Helen yeah. Old has a temper. <laughs> I think people see you as a, as a person who never loses uh, his temper. I'd watch that talk if I were you. <laughs> You delivered that villainous line pretty well. <laughs> Had me checking my whole card. You know? uh, no, the thing is, we all have a lot of people in us, and I think the job of the actor, this is the way I look at it, is to find that person in you. Because it comes with the texture of real life. If it's just a stereotype, if you just find one aspect to do, it doesn't have the full fuzzy texture of a real person, whereas if it comes out of some part of you that really is that person, but drags along some of the other stuff that's you too, it's a unique version of this, this character. 
So, but I mean, I always wanted to play Hitler, and I never got. I, now I'm too old to play Hitler. Well, what villain or bad person did you play that you really liked and you thought you did a good job? Oh, I loved. I loved the part in the Aviator. So, by your admission in this in this chamber, Mr. Hughes, you have received fifty-six million dollars from the United States government for planes you never delivered. That is correct. Well, excuse me for asking, Mr. Hughes, but what, where did all that money go? Well, it went into the plane, Senator. For those who haven't seen it, in The Aviator, you played the role of what? A, a senator called Brewster, who was totally corrupt and uh, was out to get uh, Howard Hughes and tried to destroy him at a Senate hearing. All right, this has gone on long enough. Juan Tripp is a great American. His airline has advanced the cause of commercial aviation in this country for decades. Juan Tripp is a patriot. Juan Tripp is not a man who's interested in making money. One of the nice things about playing a bad guy is that you, you can take on some of the power that the bad guy has, and it, it gives you a sense of confidence and well-being. I, I, I just a couple of weeks ago did a, a, a couple of scenes on the blacklist where I had I was torturing James Spader. I had James Spader hanging from the rafter. And I tell you, for several days after that, I had a tremendous sense of confidence. I just felt like <laughs> doors would open for me. I don't know what some psychologist <laughs> or psychiatrist might say about that. Well, you know, when I, was, when I was younger, I noticed that when I played a person who had a positive ability that I didn't have, after I played it for a few weeks, I could actually I found that I had that ability in life, either the confidence or the ability to talk my way out of something or something like that. I wouldn't take on the negative ones, and I don't take on the negative ones now. No. I was kidding. I swear to God. The president can't give me the job I want. Which one? His. It is with great humility that I accept your nomination for president of the United States. Senator Vinnick has always been opposed to gay marriage. Always opposed. Arnold Still sore? Feels like it's going to fall off. There you go. 5,000 more handshakes till the election. He always opposed to something I never heard about until a couple of years ago. Well, in the West Wing, yeah. uh, you played a not very attractive character, at least by some people's well, I thought he was. See, that's the other thing. You have to take the character's point of view. I thought he was very attractive. If I played Hitler, I'd think I had the right to do what he did. That's the thing. You not only have to want what the character wants, you have to feel you deserve it. Because it's not, it's, people aren't good or bad altogether. All Mother Teresa does a lot of good, good work, or did a lot of good work. But she was probably also a pain in the neck. She really wanted to get what she wanted, and she got it. Well, I don't want to be self-serving here. You, you had I lunch with her? her? Yeah. To her. And, um, she had a temper. She had a temper. There's a girl after my heart. Particularly when it came to raising money for a cause. Yeah. She, well, she would get mad at you if you didn't give her money? Uh, certain people. Ah, certain see? People. You see what I mean? Well, but she used it uh, in a oh. saintly fashion. Yes. Yeah, well, it was, it, it, overall, it was probably good for people that she, that she could do that. Well, on the West Wing, you were the Republican candidate right. for president. Right, which I company. had no problem with. I think he had he had good arguments for why he believed in the things he believed in. People would say to me, "Oh, is it hard for you to play a Republican?" Because I had this idea that I was some kind of arch uh, liberal, and I thought no, nobody ever asked me if it was hard to play an axe murderer. Ah, but playing a Republican presidential <laughs> that, that candidate they thought would be hard. <laughs> well, let's talk about this. You've yeah. raised it. Uh, there is that view held by some people, I'm sure I'll hear from some of them after this program, that you are the classic bleeding heart liberal. That's yeah. among the better things, et cetera, if not indeed some <laughs> near bomb throwing Bolshevik or something. Oh, Let's uh, talk about it. <laughs> well, are you a lifelong Democrat liberal? Uh, I probably, here's the first part. I don't talk about politics in public anymore because for 10 years, when I wasn't in front of the camera, I was trying to get the Equal Rights Amendment passed. Right. And I still believe deeply, and I wish we had an amendment to the Constitution that protected everybody without regard to gender or sex. And I guess that convinced a lot of people that I would be liberal in my philosophy all the way down the line. 
but I really enjoy trying to think independently and to think critically about things. And I'm as critical of uh, things on the liberal side as I am on the conservative side very often. But that doesn't mean that after thinking about things really carefully and weighing things and being thinking as independently as you can, that you don't often vote the same way. <laughs> I take your point. And I want to get back. You, you did spend 10 years speaking out yeah. for the Equal Rights Amendment, yeah. and you were seen as kind of a, a poster boy, poster man, I would say, mm -hmm. for the feminist movement. Yeah, yeah. Is that all behind you, or are you still No, that well, way? it's just part of not talking about politics in public so much, but I, I, I still believe fiercely in equality, and uh, I get pissed when I see that, that women are, are, don't get an equal chance. I was talking the other day with a scientist who did a study, and she sent out, what do you call it, CVs, resumes, right. to department heads, scientific department heads. Would you hire this person? How much would you pay this person? The resumes were identical except for the name. One version had a male name, the other version had a female name. And what she found was that they would be offered jobs less frequently if the female name was on the, on the uh, resume, and they would be offered less money if they were hired. If, if they were, you know, thought to be hireable. The scientist's reaction to that was, this can't be true because we're scientists and we're objective. <laughs> That's an odd reaction. I, I don't know how many said that, but there's no question that it's embedded in our culture. And even among scientists whose job it is to be objective can be biased. Not everybody, but it's, but it's uh, enough that it's skewed this study toward the men, favorably toward the men. Well, right now, as we sit here today, about what do you burn with hot, hard passion? You know, uh, I, I burn with hot, hot passion for a lot of things. I burn with hot, hot passion for a happy time with my wife, and we make each other laugh all the time, spend all day together. We work often in the same room, in the same office, but we send each other emails <laughs> from across the room because I don't want to distract her when she's working on her book. Uh, but I'm really passionate about where we're sitting now, about helping scientists communicate better. And I spend a lot of time on that, maybe most of my time on that, either developing new ways to do it, figuring out strategies to get other universities involved, going to universities, doing workshops with them, and going out and speaking and raising money. That I see at work even makes me more passionate, so I'm, I'm really excited about this. But, and, and then there are my other passions that I've had all my life, acting, writing. I spend a lot of time doing that. Well, among the things you and I share, we're both married to creative, artistic women, and we've been married for more than 50 years. Yeah, how long, how long are you married? 58 years coming oh, up. Oh, so I finally met somebody married two years longer than me. <laughs> well, you know, flowing out of that, the question always is, what's the secret? I'll tell yeah. you my answer. Already. What is your answer? Yeah. Uh, my answer is, if there's a secret, I don't know it. Oh. But, but I'll be I bet I have your answer, too. <laughs> right. Our, my answer is, we love each other. Try that. <laughs> <laughs> Although I did get myself in trouble. I appeared on the Wendy Williams program, yeah. and she asked me what's the secret to being married so long. Yeah. And in a moment of trying to be flip and trying to please, I said, uh, a squeaking bed. Oh, <laughs> wait, wait a minute. That can have so many interpretations. <laughs> <laughs> what, which one did you have in mind? Well, I can only tell you the one Gene Rather had in mind was, was not to my advantage. <laughs> <laughs> what was the conversation like when you got home? What conversation? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> Alan Alda has written two best-selling memoirs, Never Have Your Dog Stuffed and Other Things I've Learned, and Things I Overheard While Talking to Myself. It was in that thick quiet that I heard a question move forward from the back of my head. So tell me, the voice asked, are you living a life of meaning? The audiobook version of the latter earned him a Grammy nomination in 2008. Among your many other accomplishments, you have the books. Oh, yes, yeah. But in your books, you ask some pretty serious questions. Yeah. Pretty serious questions of yourself and of others. Yeah. So let me go down a short list okay. and see where you are in answering these big life questions at okay. the moment. What do you value? Yeah, that's, an, that's a hard question because 
Well, the, the question that you asked is, is not, not that hard a question. I value, I value the well-being of other people, especially the people close to me. I value intelligence. I value laughter. And they're all tied together. You can't be funny without being intelligent, and you can't increase people's well-being without applying intelligence and a sense of humor to them. So they're, they're kind of, they're toward the top of my list. But the trouble with values is that everybody says fight for what you believe in. Have strong values and fight for them. Well, that's what terrorists do. And if that's the whole thing, have values and, and really work to see them, see them through, that doesn't really say much. Because the, the harder thing is what is the basis of your values and what's the, what are the best set of values to have? And I don't know if that's true for everybody. Everybody has a different bias about that. So it's a really interesting question. And what are your biases in that regard? Well, the right things to value. You, you, know, you make a good point yeah. about it. it isn't just what do you value, it's yeah. what are the values. Yeah, what are the values under the values in a right. way? Uh, it's like the, the, what they say about the Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm. Whatever your values are, It'd be a good idea to check and see if they lead to harm to yourself or other people. Good point. I hadn't thought of it that way. I, want to I hadn't either. It's a good thing you asked me. <laughs> well, I want to think about that for a minute. But as we think about that, then, what does it mean to live the good life? <laughs> yeah. That's another tricky question. <laughs> I mean, the good life is often uh, promoted in whiskey ads as a glass of uh, bourbon with some ice in it. Um, or is the good life indiscriminate service to other at the expense of yourself and the people who love you? Doesn't sound so good either. No. You know, politicians <laughs> are always uh, quitting to spend more time with their family, who they haven't been introduced to in 30 years. <laughs> I, I want to see a politician say, I've decided to run for the Senate because I want to spend less time with my family. <laughs> and my wife is trying to get me out of the house. Yeah, right. <laughs> But um, the good life um, is, is a hard one to answer. I, I think it, it has something to do with feeling like you're getting something done that's useful. And again, it goes back to other people, I think. I think there's a natural tendency that we have to refer to other people as we think about inner progress we're making or progress outside our own heads. If if it looks like it's advancing the interests of the people who we think we'd like to help, then, then there's a, a, a feeling of goodness about your life, I think, that comes in. Like that's, that's the way I experience it. Everybody experiences it in a different way. Well, it's a reason it's a good question. And let the record show you raised it. Yeah, well, Oops, that's, that's the reason I raised it with yeah, you. Yeah, those were questions I, would try, I was posing to myself. Oh. Well, I think most people, this is my opinion clearly, yeah. label, would like to lead a purposeful life, mm. a life of meaning. But yeah. then it gets down, well, what exactly does that mean to you? What, what, what is a purposeful life? You know, I, it, it's interesting. In one of the books I wrote, I asked myself that question and answered it about four different ways. <laughs> and I gave a conclusive answer each time. <laughs> you know, like, this is it. And, and one of them was just uh, keeping moving. It gives you a sense of purpose. You have, I'm, look, I'm accomplishing things. But there are some moments where you pull back and you say, but all I'm doing is moving, you know. Is that really purposeful? Um, purpose, meaning, sometimes just comes from noticing life. And maybe, we, maybe there are different meanings. Maybe that's, how I, that's what I've discovered, maybe, is that at different times I feel a sense of meaning in my life in different ways. Sometimes it's just in a moment of connection with family or one of those wonderful moments of friendship where you feel that something's going between you and a friend. When I see a scientist not just communicating better but communicating with passion and life that they didn't have before, I feel meaning because I've helped somebody so in a very real way. I haven't sent away a check to help. I've given something of myself, something of my own experience that I've lived, that I've thought about, that I've worked with other people on, and we've helped somebody improve, and they love it. They're happy. That makes me feel like uh, uh, there's some meaning in it. So sometimes it's just noticing that I'm here, smelling the breeze, 
what's meaning in what's the meaning of life for a dog with his nose out the window smelling the neighborhood sometimes that's enough for me and sometimes it's really actually being of service and helping if you're going to be remembered for one thing professionally yeah what would you like that one thing to be i, really, I swear to god i don't care i uh it doesn't matter to me i i want to be remembered with love by the people I love, the people I'm close to. But, but when I'm dead, I'm dead. I don't, it's, I wonder why should I care how I'm remembered? I can't, I won't be able to enjoy being remembered. Well, not insofar as we know. <laughs> right, right. I mean, Marcus Aurelius, the great uh, philosopher and emperor, uh, said uh, 1800 or 2000 years ago, all we have is the present moment doesn't do us any good to think about our previous great achievements and it doesn't do us any good to think about what people will think of us after we're gone because we'll be dead all we have is this time now so that's what I want to pay attention to it's such a brief time we have I sometimes I think look at us we we act like we're here for a long time and we think we act as though we'll be here forever and yet it goes by so fast and then boom that's it but we don't we don't take that into account we have a we have a friend who said the other day well we all know we're going to die but not in our lifetime <laughs> another good line i may plagiarize that as well Helen, <laughs> what question have i not asked you that i should have asked you oh i, I i've asked myself all this, those questions writing the book no i can't think of anything Thank you. Thank you. What a Appreciate what a pleasure to talk with you. Well, a pleasure really to enjoyed it. Please Thank give you. Arlene my best. I will. Mind what you. a lovely lady. What? Uh, how and why she's put up with you for all this? You never know. Well, it's because I am such a nice person. <laughs> and that's the big interview for tonight. We're always eager to hear what you have to say, so please follow us on Facebook and Twitter, or send your comments to viewer at access.tv. And that wraps up another captivating episode of Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Now remember, if you love what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And of course, leave us a review and tell a friend. Thank you for joining us for Dan Rather's The Big Interview, where music and conversation unite.